Amen. Well, please turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Every once in a while I'm asked, how do I decide what I'm going to preach on? Well, normally it's just the next passage. But every once in a while, actually this is the first time, the other shepherds made me preach on something else. So these first three weeks of February, we're pursuing purity together. And if you don't like it, it's not my fault. So, I wonder if you can guess what activity is being described by these statistics. Just listen to these statistics. Guess the activity. 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors do this on a regular basis. 68% of church-going men, 50% of pastors engage in this particular activity on a regular basis. Of young Christians, adults, both Male and female from 18 to 24 who identify as Christian, 76% actively participate in this activity. What is the activity? According to a Barna Group survey with results published in November of 2020, focused on evangelicals in the United States, the activity is pursuing and viewing pornography. 68% of church-going men, 50% of pastors, 76% of young adults, 18 to 24, actively, regularly pursuing pornography. We can debate the parameters of the survey. We can squabble over the margins of error. We can disagree over who is and who shouldn't be included in the broader category of church-going evangelicals. But can we for a moment take the utter acceptance of depravity in the church in America and marvel at it? Impurity has become acceptable. Church family pornography and the so many so-called picadillos that accompany pornography are ravaging young men and women tearing apart young families, ruining established relationships, destroying futures, stealing usefulness for the kingdom, and dragging those who we hoped were with us away from us. The church too often views pornography at the same rate and in the same way as the world. then the church has the audacity to pretend that we are the answer to society's struggles. Do we think that God will bless us in evangelism when we secretly covet and silently enjoy and stealthily pursue the sins that the Savior died to save us from? The world is assaulting The hearts, imaginations, and minds of believers with impurity. But the world has always done this. You can barely now find a TV show without gross immorality being normalized. TV is chasing your attention by flashing snippets of this and that and speaking in ways on public broadcasts that used to be reserved for back alley whispers. 
The internet is the wild west of debauchery. You are never more than one click away from Satan's worst. A major factor facing the church today is all this smut can be nearly anonymously procured and invisibly consumed. You can engage in the worst kinds of evil actively, passionately, and progressively debauched and do it without your spouse or your friends or your pastor ever knowing. The level of anonymity and privacy built into these services and devices shows us that even the world understands it's not right. Shame is still there, but as long as it can be covered with a cloak of privacy, then we're comfortable to engage in impurity. But for all of us, the world is coming at us with impurity. There's no escape. And in fact, believers shouldn't escape. To escape the impurity of the world is to fail to live for Christ in the world. We cannot escape. And be faithful to Christ. You will never be able to have a conversation with someone at work without being confronted and exposed to their indulgences and impurity. You cannot expect to take the gospel to the nations where evil reigns and avoid impurity. You cannot go to those in Hutchinson without expecting to find impurity reigning where darkness rules. There's no escape. So what do we do? Well, we fight or we die. Some of you indulge in impurity because you have not been saved by the grace of God through the faith that he gives and the son that he sent that he killed because of your sin. You've not been transformed and recreated into a new creature. Therefore, you should not be worried about your impurity. You should be worried about your enmity between you and God. He's at war with you whether you know it or not. Turn your life over to him and find the satisfaction you will never find in impurity. But this is church, so primarily I'm speaking to believers. Believers who are always tempted and fighting for Christ in their hearts but needing help. We must pursue purity. To believers who are weary in this battle for purity and their passion for purity may be waning Brother, sister, fight for purity. To believers who are feeling the temptation to compromise, to lower our standard of holiness so we don't have to worry so much about impurity, brother, sister, you must pursue purity. I'm speaking to believers who are suffering in the clutches of impurity. I'm speaking to believers who've ventured back into what God saved them out of. They've, in essence, gone back to slavery to sin and said, here, shackle me up. Brother, sister, you've been set free. Believers suffer a myriad of systems when they, symptoms when they don't pursue purity Many things in their life suffer when they don't pursue purity. If they've given up the fight, 
They're living a life that dishonors God. They live a life that God will not use. They live a life that is unwholesome, unsatisfactory, unfulfilling, and unhelpful to the body of Christ. The secret surreptitious slime of impurity that some pursue and engage in even as believers thinking it's anonymous, friends, it stains our whole body. Church family, we have to pursue purity from top to bottom, from youngest to those who used to hang out with Moses. All of us have to pursue purity. This is not a young man's sin. This is mankind's sin. We have to pursue a life-dominating fashion of purity. Not a fashion of purity that confuses our fellow parishioners, but one that pleases our perfect Savior. So over the next three weeks, we're going to pursue purity together, mindful of each other in partnership one with another as family, all of us, for the glory of our Savior, because he deserves a pure and spotless bride. We're going to remind ourselves how and why we must pursue purity and understand, friend, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done for God or, or against God, no matter how trapped you feel or how much victory you have seen God provide you, we all must continue striving and pursuing purity. You're in this fight for purity or you're disobedient to the Lord. The pursuit of purity is not optional. It's an essential ingredient to those who live for Christ. As Jesus reminds us, Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What stakes could be higher? We're going to be pursuing purity in our youth and nearly every adult ministry for the next three weeks of February together on purpose, the men's Chili smoke off included. Everything that we're doing is pointing us towards purity. Why? Because it is who believers are. Those who pursue purity. Those who are set apart to usefulness for God. Pursuing holiness. Pursuing purity. We cannot claim Christ has transformed us from those enslaved to sin to those who are set free and live as though we're still enslaved to sin. So each ministry has been given the freedom to tackle the various topics surrounding the pursuit of purity, and I hope there's some overlap. In our service this morning, we're going to consider the fear of God. Next week, we'll consider the work of God, and then we'll finish with our love for God or our response to God. But as an introduction to the fear of God as the foundation for pursuing Purity, I hope you're in Exodus 19. Remember the context of Exodus, an amazing story of God's deliverance and redemption. The Hebrews had multiplied in Egypt. They were slaves to the Egyptians. They were abused by the Egyptians. They were hopeless and oppressed slaves to an awful nation master. And God heard the cry of his people, and he sent them a deliverer, Moses. And Moses, through the mighty works of God, delivered the people of God when Pharaoh finally relented after the 10th plague from God. Moses instructed the people in the Passover and led them on the exodus, the event of the exodus, out of Egypt. 
Then seeing the Red Sea part before them and the army of Pharaoh and his soldiers drowned behind them, the Hebrews entered their freedom through the gates of God's extravagant displays of miracles and signs and wonders. Some were cosmic miracles, some were personal miracles, from frog invasions to the death of every firstborn and every family in all of Egypt outside those who participated in the Passover. God showed up for his people when they cried out for him, and God showed off for his people in order that they might know and fear him. And in Exodus 19, what do you see? But we're only three months past the event of the Exodus. Kids are probably still having nightmares about hordes of locusts. Moms are probably still struggling with the screams of the Egyptian moms they heard losing their firstborn. Men can probably still feel the crashing thunder of the waves as it consumed the armies of Pharaoh. Three months from all that God had done to deliver them. These miracles were fresh, and the Hebrews encamped around Mount Sinai. And Moses, in Exodus 19, you can look at verse 3, Moses went up to God. And the Lord called out to him of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is God setting the stage for the fulfillment of his promises that he made long ago to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to use these Hebrews, this clan, and turn them into a nation to take himself to all the world and to bring from himself one who would bless the world. God says, this is my people, Israel. The world sees emancipated slaves God sees the nation that would bring about his ultimate deliverance. But the Hebrew people had been in Egypt, captivated by the gods and spirits of the land, not worshiping Yahweh clearly. Yahweh is not known to them in his fullness. So in Exodus 19, 20, Yahweh lays the foundation for them to know him. And what do we find in these two chapters? Other than that the first lesson is one bookended with a proper fear of God. God begins to reveal himself through Moses and through his continued mighty works. Moses, or the Lord says to Moses in 19.9, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. God is using the miraculous to authenticate this new revelation from God to his people, which is how he always uses miracles. In verse 10, God tells the people to wash up and get ready. And then in verse 12, he warns them, you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. More warnings follow. But what is God doing? Why does God say, don't touch my mountain? Don't let your goats touch my mountain. Read this passage sometime. What is God doing? He's drawing a line between himself and his people. Why? Because he's the creator, they are not. He's God, they're man. 
He's in control. They're not. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. Then the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Then God tells the people and the priests to, again, concentrate themselves, consecrate themselves, and if they don't, they will die. He will break out against them. God says through Moses to the people, don't mess with me, or you will die. God says, don't approach me until you prepare yourself. Even if you're a priest, be careful. If you don't, I will break out against you. I will snuff your life out like fingers crunching a birthday candle. Then in Exodus 20, God gives the paradigm of the law to Israel. Why did the law come after this display of God's power? When the law, you see his heart. In the law, you see how you can please him. But what did every honest Hebrew know when they heard the law from God? The same thing you know. You can't do that. You can't keep the law on your own. You've already failed this morning. Their lives were composed as a broken record of disobedience to Yahweh's law. And here they were. This is what God demands of them. What's their hope? So why the law? Why the miracle, the display of miracles and the wonder of glory? Why the light and smoke show? You thought that was reserved for seeker-sensitive churches. No, God did it first. Why? What was he doing? Please stand with me. Read Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 to 21, where we'll see the fear of God as our foundation for pursuing purity in him. Exodus 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning to understand you as you've revealed yourself to be, to tremble before you, to fear you, to long to be near you, to fear you and to worship you, to fear you and to rejoice knowing that you've drawn us near. Help us, these things are too great for us. Give us your grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Moses says... To the people in Exodus 20, 
Verse 20, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. I wonder, do you fear God? Moses says you must. Do you fear the right things about God? Moses says you must. Does your right fear of God keep you from sinning against God? Moses says it will. But too many today neither fear God nor view it as necessary. Too many today neither fear God nor find any reason to passionately pursue purity and are instead comfortable in their sin. But the Bible, as Moses does, says the fear of God lays the foundation for the believer's pursuit of purity. And that's what we'll consider today. And where I want to begin is to see why we should fear God. Fearing God is not just a product of knowing him. There are benefits that come to us from fearing him. So why should we fear God? Because as Moses says, fearing God keeps us from sin. And as we are those who claim that God has saved us, we must be those who are also being transformed and growing in purity. The preacher to the Hebrews says it like this, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 14. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one can see God. We must fear God because fearing God is the foundation for our purity. And we must pursue purity because we cannot be right with God if we're not pursuing holiness. These things go together, but the fear of God is way bigger than these things. In fact, the fear of God is related to nearly every salvific blessing I could think of. 13, in fact, for your consideration. 13 benefits of fearing God will fly through these Fearing God produces obedience, Matthew 10, 28. You remember Jesus speaking to his disciples. He was sending them out to preach his message. And he says, don't fear man, instead fear God. That will push you into obedience. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I'm like, Jesus, come on, man. That's a little aggressive. Tone it down. People just want love. They just need to be cared for. Jesus says, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's not evil to fear a good God. It brings righteous obedience. Second, according to Job 28, 28, fearing God leads to wisdom. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Job 28, 28. We desire comfort so much that we forfeit the benefits of fearing God. You want to be wise? Fear God. Next, fearing God provides blessings. Psalm 112, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. This is real, genuine, time exclusive blessing. What is it? Is it health? Is it wealth? It's knowing God. That's the blessing. Fearing him brings him. Fearing him brings his blessing. Fourth, fearing God brings security. Psalm 115 verse 1. The context of Psalm 115 is the evil nations around Israel mocking Israel for what they view as her inabilities. Psalm 115 verse 11 
You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Fear the Lord and find him as your help, shield, security. Fifth, fearing God brings confidence. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. Don't miss how when we fear God, we learn we don't have to fear anything else. Don't miss how this fear of the Lord is passed down. Don't we need a model of this? Dads, husbands, fear the Lord. If your kids don't fear the Lord, look in the mirror. I love Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan. So many different reasons. One of my favorite reasons is a scene that's described right here. Puny little Christian is headed towards the celestial city. He's on the king's highway, and who's the encounter but Apollyon? Satan, a hideous monster with scales like a fish, wings like a dragon, feet like a bear, mouth like a lion, fire and smoke pour out of a hole in his belly. Bunyan's imagination at its finest presents this indefeatable foe for Christian. But this is what Christian says when he meets Apollyon. Apollyon, beware what you do, for I am in the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore, take heed for yourself. Where are those kind of men at? Every man's battle garbage. Fight. Win. Be a man. Take courage. Slay Apollyon. Expect to be wounded, but know you will conquer because you're on the king's highway, the way of holiness. Six, fearing God gives life. Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. You won't find life apart from fearing God. Next, fearing God leads to relationship with him. Psalm 25. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Says verse 12. Asks a great question. Verse 14 answers. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. You want to know God? Be friends with God? Be close to God? Fear him. Eighth, fearing God provides satisfaction. Listen to just the end of Isaiah chapter 33, verse 6. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Want to be content? Want to have what you need? Want to have an abundance? Fear God. Ninth, fearing God leads to his love. Psalm 103, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. If you don't fear him, you cannot truly know his love for you. Tenth, fearing God brings out his compassion. Psalm 103, 12 and 13, we're just moving on. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who what? Guess, fear him. Eleventh, fearing God leads to his mercy. Mary and her beautiful greatest hits of the Old Testament 
song in Luke chapter 1, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. 13, oh, 12. Fearing God leads to his, or God's good pleasure. You want to please God? Ever wondered, what can I do to please God? Here it is. Fear him. Psalm 147, 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Those two things are parallel. When you fear him, you hope in his steadfast love. And what does he do? Takes pleasure in you. 13, fearing God brings assurance. It's counterintuitive. If you don't fear God, you shouldn't have assurance. You've not graduated into some higher level of Christianity. Instead, you just don't know God. To know God is to fear God. Definitionally, an unbeliever is someone who doesn't fear God. That's Paul's final indictment. Romans chapter 3, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Those 13 reasons, I hope, help you see how good the fear of God is. But maybe we got ahead of ourselves. Uh, What exactly is the fear of God? Now that I hope you want it, what is it? Perhaps a helpful and honest definition would be good. Our friend Sinclair Ferguson can help us. A proper fear of God is that indefinable mixture of reverence and pleasure joy and awe which fills our heart when we realize who God is and what he has done for us. It's a love for God which is so great that we would be ashamed to do anything which would displease or grieve him and makes us happiest when we are doing what pleases him. That indefinable mixture. He's got something there. You want to grow in your pursuit of purity for the glory of God and the good of your soul, then that's what you should be after. A fear of God that finds him so amazing that you are forced to do what's good for you and best for you and what your soul really wants most, which is reverence him in all things. A reverence that produces joy and awe, knowing we are serving the one who is better than anything else. We should be honest with the fear of the Lord. It's not always easy to define. It's not always easy to foster because on the one hand, the fear of the Lord does clearly mean that we tremble in a terror-based fear before him. We are genuinely afraid of him. Because of who he is and what he has done and what he's promised to do, you should be afraid of him. We are sinful, golden calf producing, making people, and we appear before an almighty God who shakes the mountain. Perfectly moral and pure, something we've never been for three seconds of our life. Clothed in ourselves, we should feel ashamed and afraid of him. His wrath and punishment would be completely just against us. But on the other hand, when we believe in Christ... As our Savior, that fear is transformed into reverence. That fear is transformed even into relief. Our fear of the Lord means reverent submission that pushes and produces genuine obedience. 
Because we see him so great, our fear becomes not a bad thing, but even pleasing to us as we reverence him how he is due. We know the terrible wrath we deserve and we long to live in love with and for the glory of the God who saved us and pardoned us. Our fear then becomes mixed with worship. In the Bible, worship is most often described using words that are like laying down before someone of authority or kissing the ring of a king or the most common word in the New Testament, proskaneo, which means prostrate yourself before one of authority. Sniff the dirt. Why? Because we know nothing in ourselves has earned our pardon. Grace, mercy, kindness is our only hope. And yet we fear him when we feel it all. Fearing God reminds us we love him because he first loved us. Fearing God desires to live in passionate worship of him and submission to him. Fearing God is glad submission to a glorious king. Fearing God causes us to submit gladly to his lordship. And in our obedience to him, we find delight because he is pleased. Ed Welch has a book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, it describes the fear of man and how to get over it. And he spends page upon page after page describing the fear of God. And then he concludes like this. This kind of robust fear is the pinnacle of our response to God. I think the Bible agrees with Ed Welch. To fear the Lord is to tremble at the thought of offending him by our practical atheism when we pursue sin, supposing he doesn't know. To fear the Lord is the deep-seated feeling and reality of your heart that God is not your homeboy. God is not the big guy upstairs. God is not your personal genie. Instead, God, and there is no other like him, God is not to be trifled with. He is not part of a potion that gets you what you want when you leverage your spells against him. Those who fear God ache at the thought of speaking against or acting against the God that they love, revere, and worship. Those who fear God seek a sense of God that brings a heavy, weighty awe upon their souls and produces from them flows of obedience and worship for his glory. Those who fear God seek to ensure all their life, all their pursuits have one single point on the compass that they're after him. Those who fear God desire that everything they think, say, and do pleases and benefits him before anything else. Those who fear him find him as the end and means of all things in their life. But the Bible has more to say about the fear of God. What is it? First, it's the beginning of wisdom. You know nothing until you fear God. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fools despise wisdom and instruction. The controlling principle of wisdom, the guiding light for wisdom, is the fear of the Lord. You can be super smart and have no wisdom. You can be illiterate and be the most wise person anybody has ever known. What's the difference? Fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord. What's second? I got to fast forward. Sanctification, I think. It's the beginning of salvation. That's what I meant. Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. 
that one may turn away from the snares of death. Where does it begin? Fear the Lord. Psalm 130, verse three and four. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. God doesn't save us to elevate us to his level, but to open our eyes to how profound he is, that that new understanding of him might produce in us the right fear that we might follow him and be saved by him, which is why the third thing we see here is the fear of God is the beginning of sanctification. Solomon, in his wisdom from God and his failures on earth, he knew how valuable the fear of God was, which is why he says to end his book, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14, the end of the matter, after all that's been heard, two things, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14 boils all you need to know about life dry into two ingredients. Fear him and obey him. What would you call fearing God and obeying God? I call it sanctification. Paul echoes Solomon in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We labor and we work out our salvation. We pursue the Lord with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's what God deserves of us. It's what's best for us. We know he's working in us for his good pleasure to transform us. Commenting on Philippians 2, 12 and 13, I love the connections John MacArthur makes, who today is celebrating 55 years in the same pulpit. But anyway, he says, the Old Testament truth is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. For the believers, it's not the fear of being doomed to eternal torment, nor a hopeless dread of judgment that leads to despair. Instead, it's a reverential fear, a holy concern to give God the honor he deserves and avoid the chastening of his displeasure. It protects against temptation and sin and gives motivation for obedient, righteous living. Maybe you see where I'm going. Let me cut to the chase. The epidemic of impurity within the so-called church finds its root in a people who claim to know God and love God and live for God and do not fear God. Pursuing sanctification without the fear of God is like the painter who bids on your house. Knowing that you have nasty, flaky, old paint. And he goes to Sherwin-Williams and buys the finest paint money can buy. And he shows up, and what's the first thing he does? Well, you didn't pay enough, so he just starts painting. And he paints over that old junk. Man, it looks good until it doesn't. Because it's not going to stick. It's not going to last. That's sanctification without the fear of God. What's the fear of God do? It scrapes the junk off. It gets rid of sin. If you pursued purity in the past but didn't begin with the fear of God, you just slapped new paint over peeling paint, and it didn't work, and you were shocked. Why would you have been shocked? God says start here. You started there. 
Instead, allow the fear of God to scrape your soul clean so the fear of God can paint the image of God perfectly back on you. Now your question may be, well, how do I grow in my fear of God? That's a great question. Maybe you say, I've known all these things. Nothing today was new. How do I grow in my fear of God? I have four answers for you. First, consider his presence. Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is all about God's presence in every facet of our life. Psalm 139.1, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Brass tacks, brother, sister, when you watch smut, God is with you. When you pursue sin, God is following you. When you meditate on how you'll get your fix of impurity, the Lord of glory knows your thoughts. Does that bother you? If it doesn't, then you do not know him. If it does, but you pursue your sin anyway, you may not know him. You should not have any assurance. Because the Bible gives none for habitual, high-handed, premeditated patterns of sin you refuse to break. But if you're fighting, then remember the fear of God tells us he is there with us. Will we fight with him and for him, or will we fight against him? How do you know the difference? Do you fear him? I'm just going to postulate there were some cheeky Hebrews at the base of Mount Sinai. They probably had an extra goat. And they were thinking, this Moses guy, is he telling the truth? Is this a weird storm or is that really God? Hey, grab the goat. Lead the goat until you get close and then shoo the goat because you don't want to be first. So you're shooing the goat towards the base of the mountain, a little bit of a rise, and you think, this might be it for that goat. Not yet. Keep shooing the goat. Keep shooing the goat. Keep shooing the goat. And then, bam! Clash, crap, all the stuff, you know? And you've got smoked charcoal goat. <laughs> what that Israelite just find out? God wasn't messing around. God was there. Some of you are just walking towards the base of the mountain. No goat. Just you. Don't tempt God. He's there. Be careful. But here's the crazy thing. God doesn't want us to run from his presence because we fear him. God wants us to come to his presence because we fear him. And the closer we get, the more real God is to us, the less we want what? Anything but him. Don't fear the fear of God. Instead, tremble if you have none. Second, chase conformity to God. Chasing conformity to God will bring the fear of him. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. When you pursue conformity to God, you realize something about yourself. Do you know what it is? You're not God. And you see how amazing God is. And you realize 
how you feel impossible to get to where he is because it is impossible for you to get to where he is apart from his help, apart from Christ. God is holy. He's set apart. He's not common. And yet we're to live like him. Is that exciting or annoying? Do you love the standard of God and long to live it? Or do you wish that you could just mute it and do what you want? One is fearing him. The other is pursuing impurity. Fearing the Lord means fearing to run away from him. Fearing the Lord means fearing to find pleasure outside of him. Fearing the Lord means we seek refuge and joy and hope and fulfillment nowhere but him. When you fear God, you battle sin and you fight for holiness. Third, if you want to fear God, contend with God just as he is. In short, get the puny, sentimental, modern, evangelical, man-sized God out of your system. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God says, I am coming for you. What will he find? An enemy or a child? He's coming. We have intellectualized and sterilized fearing God today. We've talked ourselves out of what it actually means. We're so afraid of scaring somebody with some fear that we don't want anybody to fear anything, especially God. But fearing God is a good thing. So how do you fear him? Too often believers fear God like they fear the lion at the zoo. He's behind two inches of thick glass. And you look at him, and you see, man, that thing's got muscles for days, ripply muscles, impressive claws, huge paws, teeth that are like fingers, terrifying beast. And you can admire it, be impressed with it, and safe from it. That's how we want to view God. But we don't get to view God like that. Because Yahweh's on the loose. He's the king of the jungle. There's no glass between you and him. Fear him. We are anything but safe from God. In fact, we're in danger every moment of every day. We're in the orbit of God's holiness, and God's holiness is anything but safe. But we don't fear God because he's bad. We don't fear God because he may lose his temper with us. We fear God because he's perfect, and we are not. We fear God because he's glorious, and we are not. He is perfection, something we have never Known. We stand in utter awe before him because he is so good, it's scary. And that lion calls us to him, and we're terrified because as we approach, we know what we deserve. But the farther away we go, we fear more because we need him. Friends, he isn't safe, but he's good. That was Mr. Beaver's Lucy to, message to Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia. When you learn of his omniscience and his omnipotence and his omnipresence, you begin to deal with him as he is. And it will bring about a healthy, worthy fear, a fear that brings and produces worship and causes you to desire to draw near. Fourth, contemplate the cross. 
at the cross, you will find everything you need to fear God rightly. When you look at the cross, what do you see? You see the white-hot fury of God's wrath. You see your sin as deserving of God's most awful wrath. You see God defending his holiness because you are sinful. I love one description of the cross with all of its cosmic implications. Charnock says, justice indeed gave the stroke, but holiness ordered it. Nothing affirms God's hatred of unrighteousness and sin and God's passion for holiness and purity like the cross. At the cross, Charnock explains, the Father chose the most excellent person, one next in order to himself and equal to him in all the glorious perfections of his nature to die on a disgraceful cross and be exposed to the flames of divine wrath rather than Sin should live, and his holiness remain forever disparaged by the violations of his law. Think about that for a moment. What's he saying? God the Father set aside his compassion and love for his son as a father to exercise his wrath and treat his son as the enemy because of you and me. What kind of a person can calmly look in the mirror and know their sin yesterday, today, and if the Lord tarries tomorrow, that that sin brought about the death of our Savior and not tremble and rejoice? That I go, I, I, know, I owe God nothing because Jesus did this for me. His broken body, not mine. His shed blood, not mine. My sin, his sacrifice. My sin, his righteousness for me. Our salvation is free by grace through faith in Christ alone. But Jesus earned it. Now you, friend, if you're his, this, it represents his body, represents his blood that was shed because of our sin. We have full forgiveness in Christ. Why? Christ's work. You can draw near to God. Why? Because he satisfied the wrath that stood between you and God. He took it upon himself. And when we see this is why we can come near to him, don't we find ourselves trembling and rejoicing that there's one so great that he could absorb my so great sin and yours and all of ours and give us what we couldn't earn, his righteousness. Because we fear God and love him, we not only worship him and fear him, but we obey him. And he's instructed us in how we are to live as his people. Christ demands a pure bride. He instructs our pursuits of church for him. We obey him not because we like it or we want it, because he deserves it. And he said this is what's best for us. 